Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his uh, loving letter to the Corinthians. Though it is full of correction, and though it is full of even rebuke at times, and strong words, Lord, it's done in a manner of love. And so uh, as we study, as we embark to, to set up camp here in the middle of 1 Corinthians, God, to, to, to have it speak to us, we pray that our hearts would be primed and ready. And uh, God, that if you need to speak something into our lives, that we would have listening ears tonight, God. I thank you that your yoke is easy, that your burden is light, that your invitation is to cast our cares upon you. And so I do that now. And uh, just help us to have a great time in your word tonight. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We did the bridge to Corinth last week out of the, the book of Acts. And I got off on a tangent and started talking about Columbus and, and, and that we have work to do in this city as Christians. There are still many in this city that need to hear the gospel. And I likened the city of Corinth to the city of Columbus, because there are many things that are similar. We have a very diverse culture here in the city. They did there as well. They were a port city. They had um, many wise people. We have that as well. And, and they had uh, learned people. And we have the Ohio State University. And, and, and they had their temple to Aphrodite with the thousand temple prostitutes. And we have our temple to the god of sport, the horseshoe where 90,000 people worship on a Saturday afternoon and they get out their rosaries, the Buckeye necklace, and though they don't have temple prostitutes, they do have beer vendors and they worship on a Saturday afternoon a false god. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with football. I enjoy football. I I'm saying there is something wrong with worshiping football, and we have a lot of that in this city. And so there's work to be done, as there was work to be done in Corinth, and that's what Paul saw. And so he decided to go and to establish a church, to preach the good news and let the Lord establish the church, and that's exactly what happened. He ends up spending a year and 18 months there. Like I said, I had gotten off on a tangent kind of last week, and we didn't even get to finish the story. I said, if you want to, go ahead and read it on your own, and I, I hope you did. If you haven't, then it's from Acts chapter 18. Fill in the rest of the story because it's important to the letter. Okay, so take a look at that. So I will say, and just to clarify, that I believe that Corinth, the city, is very much like Columbus, Ohio, the city but I do not believe that the Corinthian church and the issues that they were having are very much like Calvary Chapel Columbus. I don't think that we have the situations and the problems that the Corinthian church had. They had many issues, and that's what the letter of 1 Corinthians is all about. It's all about correcting the issues. Most of them were carnal. Most of them had you know, issues with alcohol and issues with just very sensual and, and, and what have you. And so... Paul actually spends the first 11 chapters of this book fixing the things that are wrong in the church. And then he goes on to spiritual things beginning in chapter 12. And so I don't believe that... Do I think we have some issues? Certainly. Are there things that need to be corrected in our church? Certainly. Are there things that need to be corrected in my life? Certainly. But I'm not trying to compare 
our church with the Corinthian church. So don't, don't read into that as we study the word. As we look at the letter, don't say, well, Chris sees this in our church. That's not necessarily the case. What, what's great about this is we have the letter to the first Corinthians so that you and I can learn not to do the things that they did. We can learn from their mistakes and benefit from it. And so that would be my encouragement. So here we are. First Corinthians chapter one, verse one. You ready? We embark. I feel like we're getting ready to go on a journey, which we are. And this is going to take like nine months. We'll be in first and second Corinthians, somewhere right around there. So setting up camp, we're going to enjoy this. First Corinthians one. Paul. Pause there. <laughs> Got real far, didn't we? Paul, we know who Paul is. Paul was formerly Saul, got saved on the Damascus Road, and became an apostle, became one who was sent out. That's Paul. That's the one writing the letter. Their, their letter forms were different. We sign our letters at the end. Yours truly, Chris. My BFF, or you're my BFF, or whatever, never mind. They signed it at the beginning. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. All right, so we need to talk now just a little bit to fill in, just to define some words here. Paul, called, and then if you have the New King James, what, it's gonna, what you're going to see there, or even in the King James, it'll be in italics or in brackets, the next two words, to be, Right? What that means is those words to be are not in the original text. Those were added when the King James translation happened, and they thought it would be beneficial to add those words in explanation of what, what Paul was trying to say. In this instance, I disagree with them. Uh, we, we're going to see it twice in this chapter that I don't think those bracketed words necessarily needed to be there. Uh, in the second case, I think they actually deter a little bit. But Paul called, and if you take those words out, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now, what's an apostle? An apostle is one that's been defined as one who is sent out. Paul certainly was that, wasn't he? You know his life, he had three missionary journeys. He didn't spend much time at home at all after he came to Christ. He was one who was sent out. And what he's saying here is, I've been called, I've been, I've been the one, I, I've been sent out of Jesus Christ, not on my own will, not on the will of the church. Had it been for Peter, you know, he probably would have never sent Paul anywhere, but by the will of God. This was God's plan for Paul's life to be sent out an apostle of Jesus Christ, sending, sharing the good news, the gospel, sharing, carrying that message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, what's it say? Sosthenes, say that five times fast, our brother. Anybody know who that is? Anybody remember who that is? Did anybody go ahead and read the rest of chapter 18 last week, even though we didn't finish? Well, if you didn't, or if you did, then you saw the name Sosthenes. And it's very interesting, and that's why I encourage you to go back and read the story. Because Sosthenes was the head of the synagogue. You'll recall, all right, if we talked about it last week, Paul said, 
I've had enough of you Jews. You're not listening to my message. Things were getting riled up. I'm shaking the dust off my feet, and I'm going to the Gentiles. And he walks out of the synagogue, and remember what he did? He walked next door, and he set up shop next door. Okay? Well, in that process, then, the head of the synagogue, at the moment I can't recall his name, Crispus, gave his life to the Lord. And he says, not only is Paul leaving, I'm leaving the synagogue as well, and I'm going next door with him. So then they replace him with Sosthenes. Sosthenes takes over the synagogue, and, and, and Paul continues to teach and continues to lead. And eventually, these men in the synagogue say, enough of you, Paul. And, and they try to rabble-rouse the, the people. They get Sosthenes involved, and they go then to the, the Roman council, and they say, hey, Paul is, is causing a diversion. Paul's got things going on here in this city that we don't like and we disagree with. And, and the guy says, hold on. You're arguing about religious things. These, these, this doesn't concern me at all. Get out of my court. And he kicks him out. So Sosthenes is the one that takes Paul to this court, essentially. He's the, the, the gang leader, if you would. What happens after they get kicked out of court, the people that encourage Sosthenes to take him to court start to beat him up. <laughs> they beat up Sosthenes. What are you doing this for? Who, whose bright idea was this? And somehow, in the process... He's like, I don't think I want to hang around these guys anymore. And he starts listening to what Paul has to say. Perhaps at some point gives his life to the Lord. And now one that was trying to get Paul in trouble is actually helping write the letter to the Corinthian church. He's at some point along the way, his life has been redeemed and he has joined Paul in the mission, in the gospel, in carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he's writing back to his church. Most likely his role in this would have been uh, the, the one that took the dictation, the one that wrote the letter, the scribe. Uh, Paul would have just spoke it and then somebody would have written it. So a lot in that first verse, Paul and Sosthenes writing together. Verse two, now we find out to who this is. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, call on the name of the Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Okay, so this letter is written to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Okay, interesting to note there, the word church is not solely a religious term. In this day and age, if you speak to anybody on any street corner and ask them what is church, they're going to come up with the steeple and the, you know, and, and where people gather on Sunday mornings. But back then, church had more than one meaning. It had a secular meaning as well. The word was ecclesia, and the, and the word just literally means a gathering. And so they would use it when the councils got together. They were going to have ecclesia. They were going to have a gathering of the council, councilmen. And, and so Paul has to say, yes, we are a gathering. Yes, we are ecclesia. Yes, we are the church. But he has to define it in a greater sense, the gathering of God, the church of God, the ecclesia of God. This, is, this isn't just men gathering for the purpose of gathering. This is for the intent and purpose of serving our God. So he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth. He doesn't say to the church of Paul. He doesn't say to Calvary Chapel. He says to the church of God. And, and, and that's who we are. That's who we all are as the bride of Christ. We are 
the church. We are his church, okay? To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, important word for you and I to understand as we walk the Christian life, that word sanctified, what does that mean? Well, it means set apart. It means the ones that are set apart. And we get that from the Old Testament, when the, when the tabernacle was set up, the instruments that they used for the sacrifices, the, the, the utensils they used, were solely used for those purposes, were solely used in the temple. So these weren't just a fork that you could sacrifice with and then take it home and eat your dinner with. These were set apart. These instruments were set, a, set apart for one specific purpose. Okay, that's what sanctified means. It doesn't mean just solely set apart, but set apart for one specific purpose. Okay, so then the question becomes, he calls the church sanctified. That means you and I, as the church of God, are set apart for one specific purpose. What is that? It's to bring glory to our God. It's to bring praise to His name. It's to honor Him, to call Him holy. You and I are sanctified so that the people of the world may see our light, may see our good works, Matthew 5, 16 would say, and glorify us? No, glorify our Father who is in heaven. So that's our sanctification. That's why we are sanctified. We're set apart for one specific use. That is the glory of God, that we might glorify our Savior. And so he calls us sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are set apart because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And the next little phrase, called, and you see it again there, to be in brackets, right? Called to be saints. Don't particularly like that one. And here's why. That, to me, implies that you and I can, that is the mandate in our lives, that we are called, that we should strive to be saints. And that's not the case at all. We don't strive to be saints. We don't earn our sainthood based on the things that we do. So if you just read it the way it was written, it's called saints. And you and I need to get our heads around that. Because the Catholic Church today has taken sainthood and and twisted it into something that's exclusive. And it's based on solely what people have done. And that's not biblical at all. What he says here is that you are, are a saint, not because of what you've done, but because you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. Make sense? You with me? And so we're not called to strive for something in this, in this letter. We're not called to, to aim for something in this letter and, and work toward this. We are called saints based on what Christ has done on our behalf because he has sanctified us who uh, with, with all in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We all do that, both theirs and ours. Remember, Jesus Christ 
our Lord or Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that like 10 times in the first 10 verses. Paul's going to hammer that phraseology. Either Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ. That is not his first, middle, and last name. We say that almost every letter just to reemphasize Lord Jesus Christ is not his first, middle, last name. Lord is his title. He is Lord. He reigns over all. He has complete control over all. Jesus is his name. In the, in the Hebrew, it was Joshua, which means the God who saves. And then Christ, that's his mission. That's his, his, what he did. He came as our Christ, as our Messiah. He came as the Savior of the world. And so Paul's going to hammer that. I want to make sure I hammer it as well. He is Jesus. He is our Christ and our Lord. Verse 3, and now he finally gets to his letter. Grace and peace to you, or grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typical Paul right there. That's the way he starts almost all of his letters. Grace and peace. It was a combination of greetings, if you would, as he writes to uh, the the Gentile church, the, the specifically the Greek church there in Corinth, he says to them, grace. Well, that was the m- common greeting in those days to the Greek people. As they would, as you and I would say hi or say hello to one another, they would say grace to one another. And the word, as they would use it, meant beauty. So beauty, beauty sounds a little strange to us, but that's the way they have a beautiful day. Have a have a, a happy life. You, you look beautiful. Have that that type of thing. Speaking a, a pleasantry to one another. Grace is what they would say. The word is charis there. And so we take it just a little step farther. It is beauty. It is beautiful because what grace is, and we defined this back in Ephesians. Anybody remember? Grace is what? Unmerited favor. Good job, Marianne unmerited favor that's what it is and and it's it's favor from our god not based on the merit that we have done not based on the things that we have done it's unmerited you can't earn it it's given to you freely that's grace and that's beautiful is it not and so beauty grace and peace peace was the typical hebrew greeting shalom they would say to one another as they passed each other. I found this out as I was studying. Do you know that that our greeting it was based in in uh, religious beliefs as well, in, in in Christian beliefs as well. The Puritans, as they would greet one another, one would say "Hi" as a a an abbreviation to re- say "Remember that heaven is high," and the response would be then "Hello, hell is low." And so that's the where we get high and hello from. Interesting. So, so as we say hi and hello, they said grace and they said peace, depending on what culture you were in. Paul's covering them both, grace and peace. And we always say it this way, you can't truly have peace. He always follows with peace as the second thing until you understand the grace of God. And that's why peace always comes after grace in Paul's letters is because in order to have that peace, you have to understand God's grace. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. So just knowing Paul, (laughs) I love that sentence because what he's saying is 
thank God you have grace. (laughs) That's what he's saying. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. I thank God you have grace. In other words, he's already starting. You guys have screwed this up so bad. Thank God you have grace. <laughs> it's, it's, that's Paul. Sure, he's saying we, we praise him for his grace. But I really believe that the intonation here is you need more of it, you Corinthian church, as we set these things right. As I spend 11 chapters, of course there weren't chapters back then, fixing the things that you guys have messed up. Thank God they had grace is what Paul's saying. And you know what? Thank God that we have grace too. Because I need it every day. I mess things up every day. I don't live according to his plan perfectly in any day. And probably more often than every day do I mess up. It's probably more like every hour. I've probably messed up three times since I started in one way or another. But His grace is sufficient. And we don't rely on us. We don't rely on on the things that we do, on our merit. We rely on the grace of Jesus Christ, which is always faithful. So thank God they had grace. Thank God that we have grace. Verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as a testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's actually encouraging them here. Things went well. Remember when I was at your church, He spent 18 months training them. We go from 1 Thessalonians, a, a church that He spent three weeks in, Three synagogue, three Sabbaths in the synagogue, establishing this young church to a church that he spent the most time in, a year and 18 months. I think it's the most time. Maybe not. Maybe there was one that was a little bit longer. But he spends a long time, 18 months, training them, raising them, teaching them. And he's, and he's reminding them they were enriched in everything by God as Paul taught them. In all utterance, everything that he spoke, and in all knowledge, Paul exhausted himself in in sharing the knowledge that he had. Even as to the testimony of, of Christ was confirmed in you, we saw the evidence of Christ being in you. That meant they were bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. It's quickly becoming one of my favorite verses, Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Your life will show when you have repented to God. And that's what he's saying is the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. We saw it so that they came short in no gift. Interesting. The Paul, the, the Corinthian church, rather, that Paul established, they came short in no gift. And as we get to chapter 12 and 13 and 14, and we, we have to tackle tongues and we have to tackle the gifts of the Spirit and, 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 and try to sort these things out as the church has done a wonderful mess of uh, trying to, uh, they just d- destroyed it in many ways. When we get there, it's actually fairly simple. We'll just dive into it and, and, and we'll embrace what the Bible has to say about the gifts of the Spirit and we'll take it at face value, okay? That, that, that's weeks from now, months from now. We'll get there. But what Paul is saying is they've come short in no gift. The, the Spirit of God had 
been poured out mightily upon the Corinthian church. Now that's interesting to me because what does Paul spend the first 11 chapters doing? Correcting their carnality. This is a church that was carnal in many, many ways. And yet, they had the spiritual gifts. So what we need to take from that is, God can pour out His Spirit and you can still be carnal. We, we, we tend to elevate those that have evidence of the gifts in their lives. We tend to place them on a higher level. Oh, you speak in tongues. Ooh. Or you have the gift of knowledge or the gift of prophecy. Ooh. You must be super holy. You must fast eight meals a day. And, and read your word from four in the morning till three in the afternoon, and then you start your day. Or you pray on your, look at, let me see the calluses on your knees, because you must be a prayer. And Paul's saying, that ain't it at all. <laughs> this church was entirely carnal, and yet they had the gifts of the Spirit, because the Lord had poured out the Spirit upon them. And so, we don't need to elevate those that have those gifts, okay? That we need to take that as a, as a warning, you don't have to be super spiritual to have the gifts, is my note here. That's the case. But what I like about the verse, those verses we just read at the end of verse 7, they were doing something. They were eagerly waiting the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we saw in the Thessalonian church, we see in the, in the Corinthian church as well. Paul, wherever he taught, taught the entire truth of God. And he would say, Jesus, yes, he died on the cross. Yes, he was buried. Yes, he resurrected. Yes, he ascended. But that's not where the story ends. He's coming back. There's a day of his return. There's a day when he's coming to rule and to reign as Lord. And as Christians, as Christ followers, we anticipate that day. We, as he says here, eagerly await that day. I'm anxious for that day. I might be going to Africa next week. Or should the Lord return to turn, choose to return on Monday instead of me going to Africa? I'm totally okay with that. Because we'll be with him forever. And so we wait for that day. We anxiously wait for that day when he comes to rule and to reign and to set the world right. There you were eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that title, name, mission sentence again. Verse 8, important, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is returning, and in the process of Him returning, He is fulfilling a role that the Father has give him, given Him, and that is the role of advocate. So that when the just God of the universe sets His eyes on you and says, why are you worthy to enter into My kingdom, My perfect kingdom, we have a defender. We have an advocate. His name is Jesus who will step in and stand next to us and say, Father, I bought this one with my blood. Again, grace. 
unmerited favor because it's not going to be based on anything that we've done. It's because he's going to step in and be our defender, be our advocate. He will confirm you to the end. I've got this one. He will confirm you that they may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Their sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven entirely because of the blood of Jesus. He's our defense. Verse 9, God is faithful. Remember that. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful, church. I don't, I don't, this wasn't my intention as I began to teach a few weeks ago, but it seems as though every message that I speak up here has that in it. So I think we need to hear it as a church. I think I need to hear it in my life. God is faithful every time. He never fails. His purpose and His plan is perfect. He is faithful. And by Him, by that faithful God, you were called into the fellowship, into the koinonia, into the, the, and it's so hard to describe that word koinonia in the English language. We just translate it fellowship, but it was more than that. It was more than just hanging out. It was more than just being a friend. It was more than just fellowship the way you and I think of fellowship. It's this intimate, interwoven relationship where you can't even, almost can't even tell the, the, the difference between the warp and the woof. And, and, and it's just meshed together, this beautiful thing called into that type of fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul, is what he says? And so he quickly gets to the issue. He gets, quick, quickly gets to one of the issues. Let me, let me start correcting here, he's saying. I've gotten word from Chloe's household. I wonder after he mentions this, how the rest of the church looked at Chloe's household. <laughs> By the way, Chloe tattletailed on you and busted you. And, and so, but they did the right thing because there were divisions among them. There were issues among them. There were things going on, and, and, and this division had set in. And there were cliques and sects in the church, groups. That's what some would say, well, I am, I'm of Paul. I, I, I was here when, when Paul was the pastor here, and, and I, I remember the day that he moved from the synagogue to this school. And so I follow him. And we're the cool group. And some would say, I'm of Apollos. And Apollos was the one that came in and took over as pastor after Paul had moved on. And, and he was the, the, he was a well thought, feel out, he was a well thought out theologian. He was a, a, an educated man, it says. 
And so those that perhaps were higher thinkers, as was common in those days, and especially in Greece, that's what they strove for. Well, I'm of Apollos. He was the wise one. Sure, Paul set up shop, but Apollos, you know, I'm just, I'm of Apollos. And then some would say, well, I'm of Cephas. Sure, Paul set up the church, but the, the true church began with Peter. And so I, I belong to him. And then you would get the, you know, the, the snotty ones. <laughs> I'm of Christ. You know, forget all you guys. I, I'm of Christ. I'm better than all y'all. Proud and arrogantly. We're the church of Christ. Okay. And Paul's like, get rid of it. We don't, we don't have room for that in church. We don't have room for division in church. We don't have room for different groups saying, I follow this person, or I follow this person, or I follow this person. Like he says, is Christ divided? If the church is, is rend, uh, ripped apart, who's the one that bleeds? Jesus. Is, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Is, is, is Paul the one that was the Savior? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I now baptize you in the name of Paul, of me. We follow one. His name is Jesus. We are, as the, as the letter began, His church. There is no room for division. He goes on to say in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say, I've been baptized, or I had baptized in my own name. Yeah, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I love that. <laughs> Paul's like, yeah, I baptized this guy, Crispus, Gaius. Oh yeah, I did the, the house of Stephanus. But I, I, don't, I don't even remember if I baptized anybody else. What's he saying there? He's saying to Paul, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if I baptized you. Doesn't matter if somebody else baptized you. Doesn't matter if you were even baptized at that point. Baptism isn't essential to salvation, is what he's saying. There's, there's no eternal weight of salvation in baptism. Now, baptism is important. It's, an, it's a, a, an obedience to what we've been commanded to do. But it's not, it doesn't have an eternal weight of, of, of salvation strung around it. Paul's saying that in this sentence. Uh, I, I did these people, but I didn't do it in my own name, and, and I don't even remember exactly who I baptized. Surely, if salvation was based on baptism, he would remember who he baptized. Right? He doesn't. It's not important to him. All right. Good word there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. We talked about this a little bit last week, and this is really Paul's heart as he had come from Athens, and I don't want to say fell on his face because the work was done in Athens, but it was he had taken the gospel and or he had he had tried to contextualize his message. And he spoke of the poets and he spoke of the philosophers there in Athens and, and tried to incorporate Jesus and, and, and got laughed out of the, um, the sermon at Mars Hill. Had gotten laughed out of there, essentially. 
And so as he moved from Athens to Corinth, he's, he's rethinking and retooling his approach. And we're going to find in chapter 2 when we get there um, that he comes to the point where he says, I didn't do anything but claim Christ, proclaim Christ to you and him crucified. And then he's starting to say it even here now. Um, he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news of Christ, not with wisdom of words. I'm not, I didn't, he didn't come to pontificate his knowledge. He was a wise man. He was training to be, uh, in the Sanhedrin. He had wisdom. Uh, the, the, the one that taught him, I can't remember his name now. The one that taught him, the, what, what he said of him was that, that Saul had such a great zeal for books that they couldn't keep him in books. He read everything in the library and was still hungry for more. That's Paul. That's knowledge. That's He's wise. But when he got to Corinth, he said, I'm setting all that aside, and I'm simply proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, making it plain and simple. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're going to end on that verse tonight. And I want to end with this thought. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive unless God has removed the veil from your heart so that you can see the beauty of it. And that's what that's saying. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You have to think about this. As, as you try to explain to somebody that a man came and took an instrument of death, that's what the cross is, so that you didn't have to. Just think about that for a second without your spiritual eyes on or thoughts in. It is foolishness. Why would somebody do that? Well, let me explain a little farther. Because they loved you. Why would somebody take the electric chair for me? That's the way you and I would need to think of it today. That's what the cross was. It was a place you went to die. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It makes absolutely no sense unless God has opened their hearts. Lest the cross of, or, uh, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that is the absolute truth, is it not? Once, we, once our eyes are open, once our spiritual eyes are open to what exactly happened at the cross that you were bought with a price, then it is the power of God. And so he's going to get into that a little bit more about how it, it is a stumbling block and how it is uh, uh, an issue to those in the world. And we'll talk more about that next week. But we carry this message. As, as Christ followers, we carry this message. And so it does us well to think of it often, to be familiar. I forget who said it, but we should preach the gospel to ourselves daily. It helps us to remember exactly who we are. I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's not based on anything that I've done. It's based on the goodness of Jesus Christ. And He has placed in me a mandate, a mission to share 
this message with the world. And so I want to carry this, how does he say, the message of the cross, even if it is foolishness to some. Because to me, it's the power of God. So we carry it. Amen? We sang it tonight. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Because to us, that's the power of God. Let's stand and let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. Thank you for your grace, O God. That in the day of the Lord, when Jesus, when you are sent to rule and to reign, that we have an advocate, Jesus, you, that you will stand at our defense, that we will be found blameless in the sight of a just God, not based on our merit, for it would fall far short, but based on your redeeming blood. That is grace. And I thank you for it. We praise you tonight. We thank you that we could gather tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord. May it speak to our hearts. We love you. I'm so grateful, God, for this church. I'm so grateful for the study of your word. We want to serve you wholeheartedly, Lord. God, tonight we pray for Wayne Balmer. We ask, God, your hand upon him as he's in China. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, give him strength in these hours to be bold for you and for his team, Lord, that they would remain safe, but yet at the same time they would take the risk necessary to take this message and speak it. Give them, open the doors for that to happen, oh God. Lord, I pray you'd be with us throughout the rest of the week, that we would look for open doors as well. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.